Welcome back to Darren Batchelder's Multifamily Real Estate Investing Show. Today, we have an exceptional guest with us, Sean DeMartel, an air traffic controller turned real estate investor. Sean has a unique journey that led him into the world of apartment investing. His first venture was a 32-unit apartment community, and he now is in over 300 units. Today, his main focus is on ADUs in the San Diego market. But before we get started, if you're like the majority of high net worth individuals focused on preserving your capital and building your wealth in real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call now. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Sean DeMartel. Sean, I appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, thank you so much for having me, brother. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. So just a little bit on how we know each other. I don't know, it goes back probably three years ago or four years ago um, when you were starting your own podcast. And um, I was a guest on the podcast. I don't even think I had my podcast at the time. And um, so it's been a little while since we talked last, but I'm interested to hear what you've got going on. Uh, for the listener's benefit, can you share you know, what, how many properties and how many units you're invested in? So currently, um, we, I have a little over 300 units spread across, uh, three properties. I've recently exited a few properties. So we've got about most of those units are in Greensboro, North Carolina, but now we're focusing here in San Diego on smaller projects, but that still have a big pop. And, you know, I have a portfolio of Airbnbs and things like that as well that, that are also, you know, a major part of my portfolio. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so one of the things that we talked about before getting started was ADUs. And, you know, a lot of people don't know what ADUs are. So can you share, um, you know, what is an ADU and then kind of what's your strategy around that? So ADU stands for accessory dwelling unit. And uh, those really got popular here in California in particular. I think California is really the state that kind of paved the way for these regulations. Essentially, it's a way of increasing density where they write into the municipal code where they will let you build new dwelling units, new literally apartment units. Um, typically, you can put like two of those on your single family home. Um, you know, people also know these as granny flats or, you know, things like that. You might see a garage conversion or an addition to a house. 
And they've, they've also been allowed to be used on multifamily properties to add a couple of units. What's unique about what I'm doing now in San Diego is San Diego has a unique ADU policy. So ADUs, again, came out because of housing shortages, largely in California, to try and get new rental units on the market and just increase density. Well, here in San Diego, they have a unique problem because the, there's ba- all the flat land, all the buildable land has already been built on. So there's really no empty lots. And that's because San Diego is geographically constrained, right? You got the ocean to the west, Mexico to the south, mountain is trained to the east, and then Camp Pendleton military base to the north. So it can't expand out anymore. So what the city did is to try and encourage investors to add more units and to increase density where they can. They took that ADU policy and instead of just having like two ADUs on a single family home, if a property is zoned in a multifamily zone and it's in what they call a transit priority area, they will allow you to build an unlimited number of those ADUs up to the FAR, the floor area ratio of the lot. So in essence, what this means is you can buy like a single family home that happens to sit on an RM zoned lot and you can transform that into a 10 unit apartment, 20 unit, 30 unit apartment complex, depending on the density, how big the lot is, uh, things like that. So it's, you know, I love this strategy for a whole bunch of reasons and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. But uh, it's, it's super unique because it's allowing you to do a de- basically apartment development and you don't have to go through as many hoops as traditional apartment development. Sure. So you don't have to re- go through the rezoning process. It's- yeah, you don't have to go through the rezoning process. You don't have to pay a lot of the developer impact fees that developers have to pay. You don't have to include parking in these areas because they're by transit priority areas. So, you know, you're removing parking studies and all of these huge line items from the uh, development cost. That's massive. Um, you know, a few things jump out at me. Like, you know, I know that California has property tax where, where it's, it's kind of, it can only go up by a certain amount if you've owned it for a long time. But in a lot of states, you have it where, you know, people that live there for a long time, they want to stay there, but their property taxes are getting, you know, so expensive that they're getting some, some people are getting forced out of areas that they would like to live in. It's um, true. And so here, this sounds like another way to provide additional income to offset those growing costs. Absolutely. And speaking of taxes, the way the taxes work when you do a, a, a business plan like this is that after you're finished building, the way they're going to assess this property is whatever the purchase price is or the current value, whatever the value of the existing house was, uh, the tax assessed value. And then they take literally the hard cost for building whatever new units you built. And all they do is add that on. So they don't look at it as the, what it's valued at after all those units, but what it costs you. So your tax liability is going to be, let's say you convert this into a 10 unit apartment, your tax liability is a lot less. Your tax payments are a lot less than if you, if somebody were to buy that property off of you. So the original builder, whoever that is, um, you will have a a much smaller tax liability. That's, that's huge. Um, So what about, um, you know, in the Airbnb space, one of the things that's is a hot topic now, and I don't have any Airbnb type properties, but um, in the short term rental space, 
you know, certain markets, certain HOAs, certain are changing the rules, right? Mm-hmm. And are all of a sudden making it illegal. So you have this great property that's generating all this cash flow, and then all of a sudden it changes. So what's the risk related to ADUs that the, the policies can change from over time? That's a really good question. And at the end of the day, we are dealing, you know, dealing with the government here. So, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to trust the government whenever they're putting in new policies, you know, how long will those policies be around, et cetera. Um, that it's hard to really pinpoint like the probability or the risk a- a assessment with the government and their municipal code. What I do know is that so long as you are following the municipal code with what they've put in for these ADUs, uh, the bonus ADU program, you're going to get your permits. Um, I think the risk with this business model is more so like, you know, it, a lot of the risk that you find in traditional de- uh, development is reduced with this model because, it, you know, you brought up Airbnbs. What I, One of the things I love about this model is that you're buying an existing property that can produce income while you're waiting for your permits and to build the new units, right. right? Whereas with traditional development, you're buying an empty lot and you have all of these um, holding costs, you know, you're still paying the mortgage, you're still paying property taxes while you're waiting to get those permits, which could take years. And with our properties, our model is to buy the property, fix up the existing house. We actually do secure Airbnb permits here in San Diego so far for those properties. And if we can't get one of those, we make it a midterm rental. And then that is generating income so that we can pay all of our bills and have virtually no holding costs. So a lot of the risk that you might find with traditional development is reduced with this kind of a model. I don't really see there being a lot of risk in the government turning back on this policy. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, the city is so behind on their housing needs. The supply and demand imbalance here is one of the worst places in the country. It's become the most competitive rental market in California. On average, 17 renters are competing for the same apartment. Uh, and that was recently reported by CoStar. Um, in addition to that, the city released a report in 2022, November of 2022, called the Annual Report on Housing. And in that report, they showed how far behind on their housing goals they are. They need to build 108,000 new rental units by 2029, which would mean they need to triple the amount they've been building every year for the past several years. And they need to triple that amount every single year through 2029. And I just don't think that's really possible for the city. A lot of analysts don't really think that they're going to be come anywhere close to hitting that goal. So I think that the city, for one, is just so behind on housing and they've got nowhere else to build that you can depend on this model being there for years to come. This is a new, a, a newer strategy. I mean, it's only two years old. Um, so it's not like this has been around for very long either. But I think the way that the city is also looking at this is this is allowing them to take multifamily lots, right? That don't currently have multifamily on them, or it's not meeting the max density. So I think the city is looking at it as, okay, we've got a serious housing problem here where we're not anywhere close to building enough housing um, and having enough rental units. At minimum, the proper, the, the lots that are zoned multifamily need to have multifamily on them. And that's basically what this is accomplishing. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think about that. So I'm in the North Dallas market. My son recently graduated 
Uh, Texas A&M, he's got his first job. He's living at home, but he's looking for for a place. He's looking to buy a duplex or threeplex or fourplex. Uh, um, But it's expensive. And I'm like, it would be pretty cool if we had land and then he could just build a small property on our lot. And, And he lived there. He's got his own little place. And then when it's time for him to move, he can he can move and we can rent that. Um, that that would be nice. That so I think it fits that mold where you you've got students that are moving back in with home home, um, and also fits with. Um, I had another gentleman on on from California that was building multi generational type properties. Um, so five bedroom properties, but it was meant to have mom and dad live in the same, you know, um, facility, the same right. complex. So they're, they're builder, they're bigger. Maybe there's two masters, um, and it's built a little, you know, a little different, but here having that ability, you could end up having, you know, the parents that own the land outright or, and have a lower cost basis to build these ADUs for, you know, adult children that are coming back. Absolutely. I mean, it's essentially like you're describing basically like a house hack. And I think that that's a brilliant way of doing it. And in fact, that's one of the things that I want to do. You know, I do own properties here that are Airbnbs, but I'm, I'm looking at this model as a way for me to get my ocean view property that I've been dreaming of in Southern California for so long, because there are areas by the beach where I can do this model. And in fact, I've got one property and hopefully a second one if my offer gets accepted that are half a mile from the beach where I'm putting 10 unit apartments. But um, I plan on using this strategy to essentially house hack, buy a property, build several units behind this property, go up a couple stories so that I can get ocean views that I've been dreaming about and then have my tenants essentially paying down the mortgage for me. Yeah, that's huge. Um, yeah, it's huge. I mean, otherwise, I don't think I'm going to be affording a home with ocean views in San Diego anytime soon. But right. uh, it's a little bit of a hack. Yeah. And a lot of people are using it for ways like that. Um, I know people that have built ADUs and actually lived in the ADU themselves because it's obviously a brand new unit and you can make this look just like a house or sure. a duplex, whatever you want. Well, tiny homes are like the all the rage too, right? So, you make, you know... If- the size of these ADUs could be, um, you know, whatever you want, right? So is are there limits in terms of the size compared to? There are. There are. Generally speaking, you're going to be, you know, around 1,200 square feet or less. Um, you can, it, you know, it, it kind of depends because, yeah, I mean, you can get dwelling units that are bigger than that. So, for example, these RM zoned lots will usually have a, you know, a density calculation where you can tear down the existing structure and build multiple dwelling units that aren't even considered ADUs yet. And those you can usually do any size you want. But yeah, generally speaking, there are actually limits on accessory dwelling units where you can't, you know, put a 2000 square foot house in the back and call it an ADU. But so that was one of the questions I had. Your business model is to, to buy and possibly rehab the, the existing, home and then Correct. rent that out and then build the ADUs. Um, are people using this policy to tear down also? And it really kind of depends. So we are using it to tear down. Um, oh, there's a project okay. that 
on one project on another, we're not. And it kind of depends on where the lot is because for example, if it's in the coastal overlay zone, um, which is essentially anything that's, you know, a couple miles from the beach, if, if it's in that zone and you were to tear down the existing structure, you have to jump through way more hoops and you're adding, you know, a year to the timeline of getting your permits. So in a lot of cases, it doesn't make sense to tear down the existing structure. And in some cases, like, uh, you know, I, they, San Diego has a crazy law where if you tear down an existing rental unit, okay, so let's say somebody was living, you have a duplex, you're going to tear down and build a new apartment. If, if people were renting out those units, what they will do if you tear it down is they will get the tax returns for all tenants that have lived there for the past five years and they will implement rent control for whoever the lowest income level was for 55 years. Holy cow. 55 years? Yeah, I'm dead serious, yes. And so, you know, tearing down structures, like if you've had renters in there in the past, almost never makes sense because they're going to really control how much you, literally tell you the exact maximum dollar amount that you can rent it for. And they're doing that because they want to keep affordable housing. They don't. They don't. They don't want you to tear it down and then build all these really expensive correct. Units. But I still think it's foolish. And here's why I think it's foolish for them to do that. I understand their intention, but what has happened with me and my firm and other partners that I have, the developers in the area, is people are turning down projects where more units would otherwise get built. So, for example, there's cases where you know, the, the project no longer makes sense because we need to tear down the structure in order to have room. Because let's say, for example, you have a lot and the house is sitting dead center of the lot. Well, because of your setbacks, you don't really have a lot of room to build in front or behind it. So you need to tear it down so that we can put a 10 unit structure there, for example. Right. Well, if you're going to do that to me and now the deal doesn't pencil, we walk away, someone else buys the home and doesn't add those units. So now the city's getting, not getting those 10 units. Right. And in my opinion, if that regulation wasn't there, or if at least it wasn't severe, San Diego would be getting more housing built, which would have a net outcome of easing the rental crisis here a little bit more. Right. They could have, you know, they probably could have put some some barriers around that to say like, hey, if you're going to tear it down, then we want to see more units than were were there before. And Yeah, I would agree. And the total... Um, you know, uh, you don't, they probably are trying to prevent super, super expensive stuff to get built. But uh, in any event, um, that is interesting. And so you're seeing that in San Diego. What about other parts of California? Is it, is the ADU? So no other part of California has this bonus ADU program. Okay. Um, San Diego is the only city in the country, to my knowledge, that does. Are people thinking uh, that it's it's a success so far? Is it something that people are absolutely? At? Yeah, um, I believe last year twenty percent of all new rental units that were built it was like nineteen or twenty percent of all new rental units that were built were accessory dwelling units in San Diego. So um, I know that city officials have been praising it as a success. Um, I know a lot of people that live in the city are don't like more density because it is causing more, you know, parking issues throughout the city. So there is, there has been this 
you know, a negative outcome from it is that now you have even more cars in these neighborhoods. But um, I think overall, if the goal is to get more housing in this city, then it's, it's undoubtedly a success. And a lot of people are seeing it that way. Um, I really believe what the city and, and what they're doing, because I mean, obviously I could be biased because this is a business model of mine, but the city is just so constrained on housing and so many people want to live here that I don't really see the city having many other options other than just straight up going vertical and having a lot, lot more density. Um, but I don't really see them doing anything extreme on that end density wise throughout the rest of the city, because I think there's too many NIMBYs here. So I think that at the end of the day, this might be one of the only levers that they have to ease the rental and housing crisis. What about, um, and I'm here, again, California comes to mind is, is where I'm, I hear this more often, um, and I think it could spread, um, but you know, it's gotten so costly to buy single family homes, apartments, whatever, um, that you're seeing, you know, people rent by the room, you know? So, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's common around colleges, but, you know, outside of college, you've got the young professionals that are coming yep. together. So do you see that in San Diego as well? Yeah, I see two things in San Diego. Number one, um, you know, that's something that I've started to see a lot more of in San Diego. They call them co-living spaces. Okay. And I've literally, I, I, Seriously, I've seen um, actual apartment complexes that have hundreds of units that are co-living spaces. So for the listeners out there that, you know, don't necessarily know what that means, it quite literally means like you would rent, let's say there's a two bedroom apartment available. You can rent just that bedroom for a, a cheaper amount, essentially. Um, and you know, you're going to be put into that bedroom and then you're sharing a common area with another tenant who's going to be essentially kind of like a roommate. Um, and sometimes they'll set these up differently where like a lot more people will be sleeping and, and closer arrangements or their bedrooms will be closer or something like that. But you're, you're starting to see bigger communities be built so that they can put a lot more affordable units online and it's still penciling for the developers. The second thing I'm seeing here a lot to kind of reduce that cost are smaller units, micro units is what they'll be called here. So you'll see a lot of apartments being built with 300 square foot studios, sometimes even smaller. I mean, I've literally seen 250 square, uh, square foot versions, um, but anywhere between like 300 and 450 square feet is pretty normal to be seen for studios and one bedrooms now, wow. where like on the 450 square foot, you know, you can actually make it a one bedroom. And then two bedrooms as low as, you know, 750 square feet um, to maybe 800. So for people that living in Texas, that sounds crazy because you guys would get, you know, a mu probably much larger spaces, especially with these newer apartments. Um, and those units will rent for insane amounts. I mean, you know, 450 square foot, one bedroom that rents for $2,700 a month. Wow. Um, you know, the building that I live in, which is a class A building in Little Italy, studios here uh, go for north of $3,000 for the cheapest one that's on the bottom floor. Um, so rents here are undoubtedly um, insane. You know, if you're in a class A building, one bedrooms uh, could be $4,300 starting out on the lower floors. 
So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but there are a lot of high income earners here as well. Yeah. I mean, it's relative to the income that you're, you're making. If, if you're making, you know, enough income to afford that, then, then that's fine. Um, So I just want to get your take. I mean, we're, I'm sure this is not new news to you that we're Mm -hmm. in an environment where we've got the largest gap in, in affordability between renting and owning. Right. So owning a home, purchasing a home with 8% interest rates, you know, versus renting is the, the largest gap we've ever seen. So in my mind, one or two things have to happen. Either single family home prices have to come down or rents are going to go up to, to narrow that spread. It can't stay, stay at this level forever. So what do you see happening? Which, which are those two? I see that gap getting wider, unfortunately. You see, you see the gap getting wider. I do. And the, here's why. And in certain areas of the country, I see it getting wider. I think in places like Texas, Texas has a lot going for it. It can keep building out homes um, and apartment complexes. And, I th- and so, you know, a market like that, I, I would look at a little bit differently. Here in California, I see the gap getting a lot wider. And there's a couple of reasons why I see that happening. I don't think that the city in any of these cities in California are going to build enough units um, to ease the housing crisis, to essentially balance out the supply and demand. You know, to put it into perspective too, just because I think a lot of people, I haven't put it into perspective well enough on the supply and demand. Uh, In the central coast market of San Diego, if you were to look at Coastar or something like that, in June of last year, uh, uh, vacancy dipped below 1% for a quarter. Um, and it's hovered at around 3%. So, and I, and I mentioned earlier about how so many people are competing for the same uh, spots. I think here in San Diego, number one, in particular, I think the gap's going to get wider because number one, the city isn't doing enough to incentivize developers to keep building. Um, two, there's still too much power given to NIMBYs to push back on new housing developments. Um, there's so many stories I know of huge developments where like a a developer was going to transform a a golf course that went out of business into hundreds of homes and the community pushed back because they didn't want the extra traffic and they won. I think that California has been shooting itself in the foot for so long. Even the governor, Gavin Newsom said that NIMBYs, which for the listeners out there, that's a term we use a lot in California. It stands for not in my backyard. So everybody seems to be all for new housing or all for this policy or that policy. They just don't want it close to them. So we call those NIMBYs. And Gavin Newsom even said NIMBYism is destroying our state. Mm. I think that all that plays into it. And I think that rent control policies play into it. Um, uh, The Bay Area is a great example. Um, There was uh, a study done by um, professors at the University of San Francisco, and they found that in the years after the Bay Area implemented rent control policies, really strict rent control policies, the supply of rental units decreased by 20%. Wow. And they concluded that it actually made the problem worse because you're only, and we have these similar regulations in San Diego. You're just basically... Uh, capping how much a landlord can raise the rent on an existing tenant when they're going to renew. But if that tenant moves out, you can bring that unit back up to market rates. So what ends up happening is you have much lower supply. So when a tenant does move and that landlord raises rents up to market rate, they're going to, they're able to get even more in rent because so many people need a place to live that they're outbidding each other. 
So I think that those kind of policies, we're seeing that here in San Diego, just to a little bit of a lesser degree. I think when you combine everything that the state of California is doing, I think that it's going to continue making that gap wider and wider because only the wealthiest people are going to be able to afford homes. Um, developers are going to continue only building like luxury class A because that's where you can actually make money. Right. And the, you know, people out towards the bottom, the middle and the bottom aren't going to get service and aren't going to get that as much housing as they need. That's my prediction. I, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, you're the first person that has told me that and it's, it, you've got, you know, some good reasons why that could happen. Um, another thought that came to mind as you were speaking was in California, you know, I don't remember the, the rule, but I, I think it's like 1%, right? Property taxes and it, mm-hmm. and it could only go up by a certain percentage each year mm-hmm. um, as long as you own it. So I'm thinking the combination of low interest rates, you know, that's, that's pretty much a national thing where that's keeping supply low because people don't want to put up their, their house for sale because they have a 3% interest rate and they don't want to go someplace else for a seven or 8%. But in California, you've got the interest rate, you know, that's lower, but then you also have, Hey, if I move, my property taxes are going to go up dramatically. So the owners are most likely just going to hold. I agree. And we're seeing that. I mean, (coughs) you know, owners are holding what's crazy in San Diego right now, by the way, I just checked on this data just the other day is that home prices have actually gone up, I think five or 6% uh, year over year in 2023, despite these crazy high interest rates, the time on market is like right at 30 days. Um, So homes, even if they are hitting the market, so many people need these homes that they're, I think 40% of homes are still selling for over asking in San Diego. Mm. The median home price is like 990,000. I mean, we're right at a million dollars. I think that the people that are locked into those rates that bought a long time ago, you know, a lot of my friends that grew up here, their, their parents, they can't even afford to sell and then go move because they're going to end up having to buy back in the same market where prices are ridiculous and there's high interest rates. Do you know what the split is on investors versus owner occupants? I don't off of the top of my head. Um, I think that the vast majority of them, uh, it, my guess, just from what I've seen in the past are owner occupied. Um, there is a lot of investors that the majority of multifamily in San Diego, by the way, are small, less than 50 units. Um, so there are a lot of, uh, investors that own tons of these smaller multifamily throughout San Diego. Um, but as far as the single family homes are concerned, the limited supply, I do believe those are mostly owned by homeowners that have been owning them for a long, long time. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's so interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of things that people outside, I'm like, I'm in Texas, a lot of people outside of, you know, California that, that shun a lot of things that are happening in California. But I think Mm -hmm. that there's some, because of the high cost as that high cost starts to go elsewhere, I think that some of those same strategies are going to have to be used in other markets as well. I agree. And, and I would be willing to bet that I'll, some of these policies, like, you know, the growing prevalence of ADUs, we're already starting to see ADUs get put into the municipal code for other cities. I wouldn't be surprised if Texas had some, you know, Texas, a lot of Texas cities had something in there for ADUs. 
Um, I think that those strategies are going to continue to proliferate throughout the United States because the housing issue is nationwide, um, just a huge shortage on homes and rental units in most markets. So I wouldn't be surprised if that had a, a trickling effect of, of, of going everywhere. And to your point about California, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm an investor here, but I completely agree with you. A lot of the policies are, make no sense. The, you know, rights given to the tenants over the landlords, I think make absolutely no sense. And I could say some things that will blow your, your audience's mind. One of the policies that they want to implement here in San Diego, among the many that are already crazy, if you own a home and you're renting it out, okay? And then your tenant's lease is coming due or is uh, about to expire. And you tell them, I don't want to renew with you because I want to move into the house. I want to move into my home, back into my home. Right. They're proposing a new regulation that will not allow you to do that. That you can't even move back into your own home. You can't even move back into your own home that you own if the tenant wants to stay there. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, a lot of those regulations play into why I've never been interested in investing in San Diego until now, until this new uh, bonus ADU policy, because the, you know, I, I won't go too long because I know we're probably getting towards the end here, but these, the, 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 one of the benefits that I love about this is that I get to place all of my tenants. So, you know, I get to put in some new class A finishes, have a nice property and, and select tenants that are high income earners that have a very low, much lower probability of, you know, trying to squat, doing all those kind of things you hear about in California. That's why I'm not really interested in value add multifamily here. Um, it's almost impossible to underwrite and know when you're going to be able to get that tenant out. But that uh, is one of your other strategies, right? Is value add multifamily. So you, for value add multifamily, you go outside of, of California. That's correct. What that's markets correct. are you focused on? Greensboro, North Carolina is where the bulk of my portfolio is. Uh, recent last year sold some of my portfolio in Greenwood, Indiana. So Greensboro, North Carolina, Greenwood, Indiana, um, are where I've owned my value add multifamily. Um, why are those and, markets? Yeah, those are, those are great markets. Um, nice cheap markets where you can get a, a lot of units for low cost per door. And there's tons of value add opportunities there and there's great market fundamentals. Um, but here in San Diego, you know, it's just a different kind of a business model. You know, it's not a cash flow heavy business model, but you can still get over 20% annualized returns with this kind of a bonus ADU play. Right. So with the ADU play, is it similar where do you syndicate those types of deals? We do. Okay. They're smaller syndications, but you know, they're passive investors. So that's how we, you know, we're typically, if you're doing, you know, these 10 unit projects, it's going to be, you know, all in less than a $2 million raise. So these are much lower raises. But, you know, you're still talking millions of dollars in profits. I mean, these properties, a 10 unit property, when, you know, we'll spend on average about $200,000 a door to build it and they will sell and trade for north of $450,000 per unit. A, a 10 unit property will sell for $5.5 million plus in, in San Diego. That's awesome. So is it, is it similar to a value add where it's like a five-year business plan and... and Yes. Uh, typically we're three to five year business three, plan. Three to five year business plan and the return profile is, is similar? It is. Kind of so the return profile is similar from an IRR perspective and annualized return perspective. 
um, where you're going to see the di- the biggest differences in the cash flow and you know the ability to to put out. You know, if your number one goal is cash flow within the first two years, then this model wouldn't fit your goal set because it takes two years to get the actual apartment built and then leased up and then renting and, and oh, actually producing the cash flow. It's right. a little bit of a joke right now because I, I'm in a lot of multifamily deals and I've been cut off on distributions on, oh, yeah, on a huge percentage based on increased interest rates, high insurance, you know, et cetera. So yeah, every, everything um, getting more expensive, labor. everything getting more expensive. So cash flow is getting hurt even on the value add deals. So, yep. uh, but you know, ground up development, that's, you know, that going in that you're not, you're not going to have the cash flow. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I always make sure to tell my investors like, look, you know, cash flow for the first two years, we're not going to make any distributions, but once we get it built and then once we sell this, you are going to be getting some nice checks. So it's all, you know, back end. it's all fronted on the back end. Right. Um, so it is a little bit different than that. I mean, but even with, I, I tell people all the time, even with multifamily value add nowadays, even if you were to buy in the next couple of years, if you were to buy a deal right now, the likelihood of you getting, you know, a six to 8% cash on cash return out the gate or within the first year, probably pretty low as well. Very, um, very, 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 <laughs> very, very low. Yeah. You know, I mean, typically you have a positive spread between the cap rate and the interest rate. So mm-hmm. if you're, and now it's flipped. So yep. you actually have to implement value add to improve the NOI just to be breaking even. And so exactly right. Or put a massive amount of money down, which is also what we're seeing too. I mean, nowadays you're putting 60 or you're getting 60% loan to value, even on multifamily value add deals, which seems crazy to think about when just two years ago we were getting 80 um, offered to us left and right. But here in California, it's not uncommon for 50% down to be the norm um, for, for projects. Yeah. So, all right, let's go. We're, I know we're putting you on the, economic hat now, but we're going to 2024, you know, it can go one of two ways, right? We can, we can go into a massive recession and, you know, all asset prices go down and interest inflation's up and, you know, interest rates stay up and it's a very, very difficult time. Flip side is interest rates could come down and then all of a sudden, these multifamily deals start penciling better. Residential, you know, people start putting more inventory out there and people start buying more and prices go up. Um, what's, what's your take for 2024? My take, I'm in the, in the camp that, that believes that the highest probability is that towards the end of 2024 um, is when we will start seeing slow declines in the interest rate. Um, I, the Fed has alluded to that and most of the economists and groups that I follow that have made that case, it, that seems to be the strongest case to me on, on the highest likelihood. When that does happen, what I believe is going to happen is you have a lot of people sitting on the sidelines waiting for interest rates to go down so they could buy their own home, for example. Um, you know, my generation, the millennial generation is one of the largest generations in history. And they delayed starting new families, buying homes and starting families until their thirties. And that's the age that they're hitting. And now they're all like, that's the biggest group waiting on the sidelines to buy homes. They're starting to get into the peak of their careers. So my prediction is that going into the end of 2024 and going into 2025, 
as those rates start to come back down, I think you're going to see a flurry of activity of people wanting to buy homes, which is going to drive the prices up um, again. Where are they going to um, come from? Are they coming from living with mom and dad, you know, so that they're, it's a new household formation or are they leaving apartments and going buying their That's a really good question. I think it's a combination of both. I think definitely a lot of them are going to be leaving apartment rentals or home rentals so that they can pursue buying their own homes. Um, I don't think that, I think it depends on the market. So if you're listening to this, be careful if you're reading generalized news that tells you the supply and demand of the entire country, make sure you look at that specific market because in a place like Texas where they're building a lot of units, uh, specific cities in Texas maybe, um, that might be worrisome. Um, and other cities that, you know, they have nowhere near enough housing, that might be different. But I do think that a lot of people will be leaving apartments in order to purchase homes. And I think that, you know, even when it comes to the multifamily side, you're going to see a ton more offers being made on properties because so many people have investors in dry powder waiting. So I think that as those deals start to come up, you're going to, it's, we're going to be back to where we were a couple of years ago where you're seeing 10 groups or more maybe competing for the same offers. And I think the same thing with single family homes. My prediction is even that we're going to hit, we're, we're going to be at such a affordability crisis in the country for single family homes. My money is on the government actually going to back 40 year mortgages. Mm. We're seeing that brought up a lot. And I would not be surprised at all if in the coming years, the government says, okay, you know, Fannie and Freddie are going to start backing 40-year mortgages so people can actually afford to get homes. I don't doubt that. I mean, think about cars, right? Cars, it used to be a four-year loan. Now, I think it's, what, seven years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can get crazy car yeah. loans now. And, and <laughs> seven? Yeah, that's, that is know, a long time. That's a long time for, for a car, right? And, yeah. and consumers just look at what's my monthly payment. Exactly. Right? And exactly. And people will do the same thing with housing if if the government will allow it. Um, so that that's an interesting point. So hey, where where do you go from here? You're doing um, ADUs in San Diego. You're focused on a couple markets on value add. Kind of wh- where do you see yourself going in the future? I see myself right now like I'm not really. Um, uh, I would. I guess you could say that I safely say that I'm pump, pumping the brakes on value add multifamily for now. Even in the markets that I've been interested in, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that it's just too tough for me to be able to find deals that actually make sense with that model right now. That could change at at the end of 2024. Sure. Um, I, right now, I th- you're. I think I'm just going to be focusing on this model here in San Diego because in today's market, it's the model that I know I can make work. And I'm going to take what the defense has given me. Um, so I'm going to evolve, uh, change my strategy to what I see is working. Um, if any of the listeners, by the way, want to learn this strategy, I have a free ebook on this strategy on my website, investorshawn.com, S-H-A-W-N. Uh, scroll to the bottom and you could download my ebook. It's called California Gold because I call this the new California gold rush. Awesome. Um, so I think that, um, you know, that's going to be my focus for now, but I'm somebody that, I'm, gonna, I'm a real estate investor that believes that one strategy isn't always the best strategy. You know, I, house flipping. I, I like that. I, I read a lot of books and, and, you know, so the real estate investors that have been around through a lot of different cycles, that's a consistent theme that, you know, yep. give, give, you know, take what the, the market is giving you and, you know, you have to change your strategy based on, 
you know, what, exactly. what the market is doing. So um, I appreciate you sharing that with people because I, I also agree with that, uh, that approach. Um, so is that the best way for people to find you and find out more information about you is investorshawn.com? Yeah, I would say that's the best way. That's my personal website where you can learn more about me. You can get all my social media links on there, Instagram, all of that stuff. Get the ebook, um, sign up for my newsletter, whatever you want to do. If you want to keep in touch with me, I would say that's the best resource to go to. And also follow me on Instagram, Sean underscore DMartel. And I'm sure the spelling will be on this episode. Awesome. Sean, well, I appreciate you coming on. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 